You know, as we're talking about <clears throat> surrender, um, surrender is best learned with a surrendered people. Um, I cannot tell you that if you try and do walk this alone, surrender is going to be much more difficult. But when you walk with a surrendered people, the questions that are developing in your mind, you begin to be able to speak to a group of people who have probably wrestled some of those questions before you. And it's a good way to journey what surrender looks like. And it's part of the reason we actually started this new 9 a.m. schedule is uh, not only to alleviate some of the parking nightmares we were having at 10 a.m., but to also invite people to smaller, to groups of surrender. People who are figuring out what does it mean to live a surrendered life. And we wanna begin that process with every age group. And so right after our gathering times now, we have opportunities for children to learn to surrender. Smaller groups beginning that pattern of life that is so not valued in our day-to-day. -day. Students, middle school and high school, learning to surrender. Hearing from people who have surrendered, who are struggling to surrender, who are trying to figure surrender out. We have small groups that are sitting around the scripture and learning to surrender. Not just gain knowledge and information, but truly surrendering together. There are small groups that meet throughout the week that are learning to surrender. It is the heartbeat of the Christ follower's journey and it is the way we grow. We grow in surrender. Christian maturity is not overcoming everything with your powerful strength. Christian maturity really is surrendering faster. So where you used to take 10 years to surrender, maybe you only take five now, I don't know. Where you used to take 60 seconds to surrender, now maybe you take 59 seconds to surrender, I don't know. But what we're talking about this morning is significant because it really is the lifeblood of the Christ follower's journey. And I know we don't necessarily love that word. And the reason we don't love the word surrender is because we love the idea of never surrender. Right? Like that's what we love. We love the ideas. We love the films, taking that final stand holding your ground, not running from the impossible situation, but overcoming it. We, we love those, those speeches, you know, like, like Churchill's speech, the, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. Like, you can go listen to this speech. It's how he says it. Like in our darkest days, like the Darkest Days movie, he does all this stuff where he's like, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And like all the people are cheering. But if you go listen to this speech, it's like, we shall fight in the fields and the streets, we shall never surrender. But it rallied a nation, like, you know? But it's that idea. We love the idea of not giving up, of having fought, of having kept going. And there's something that loves, that knows that we held to the end. Like that's what we did. We accomplished it. So we hate 
the image of the white flag. Like, I don't know if you, you look at that and you're like, oh, that's weak. That's weak sauce. Don't bring that in here. That's weak. Like we look at that white flag and we go, oh boy. They didn't have what it took, man. They did not get that win. They lost in a very visible, visual way. I mean, for you and I, if we went to movies and Rocky was like, it is about how many times you get knocked down and stay down. That sounds ridiculous, right? If William Wallace was like, use your freedom to ride from the enemy right away. They can have our freedom. Like, no one goes to see movies about that because we never surrender. That's the way we operate. It's the way we work. The white flag waving has been used for hundreds of years, but they actually have historians, some Roman historians, during the time of the church that wrote about white flags being waved in wars as early as 67 AD and even before that. The white flag teaches and displays and was used because, and I thought this was fascinating, the white flag actually began being waved because it was such a stark contrast to the war, the blood, and the chaos that was surrounding. The reason the white flag was waved is because number one, white fabrics, these fabrics that were white were easy to come by. Anybody, poor, rich, could have. But secondly, when that white flag was waved in the face of all the blood and the chaos and the war, it stood out big time. And in the 1500s, peace negotiators would carry the white stick with this white cloth hanging off of it. And it actually became wartime law in the 1600s that if that, wa if that flag was being waved in the air, it would be the exact same thing as sending a representative to verbally say, I'd love to sit down with you and discuss a truce. Like, I wanna sit down. So, it was seen as the exact same thing, throwing that flag in the air, was as if you were speaking the words, I'm ready to stop all this, and can we work towards peace? Now, whether or not you like that, what, what the white flag meant is we have no other options. I have nothing I'm so close to death that I'm willing to say there are no other options. See, this is why we don't like surrender. We don't like the idea of throwing our hands up. We don't like the idea of waving the white flag. Why? Because we all want to be the hero. We all want to be the one who gets the win. But for the Christ follower, there is something very different that we have been called to live. As a Christ follower, the hardest part of what you and I attempt to live out and attempt to communicate is the idea of surrender. And that is such a hard thing to say to a culture who is 
Hashtag winning all the time. The idea of speaking surrender to a culture that says, I do it myself, is one of impossible concepts for the brain and the heart outside of the spirit of God's presence to truly even desire. After Jesus and his disciples complete the Passover meal, we talked about a little bit last week, this meal was filled with all sorts of emotions and images of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, something that a teacher never did for their students. The idea that someone in their own camp was going to betray him, something that was impossible to the minds of these men who had been eating around the table together, because in that day and age, to eat around a table with someone was essentially to say, now you'll never betray me. So the idea of betrayal is much bigger deal to them than it might be to us. And so those meals communicated something of great value, but the fact that Jesus said, someone around this table is going to betray me was a shock to their system. Now, when you, after they finish this conversation, they make their way out to the Mount of Olives. When we were in Jerusalem, I'm gonna show you some pictures and I wanna walk you through really quickly what you're seeing. So from this perspective, uh, you are looking across the Kidron Valley, and that is the old city of Jerusalem. You can see the walls there. And that's actually, in front of that wall is a now a Muslim cemetery that has been built up in front of that wall. And they have their reasons for that, and I won't go into any of those details right now. Uh, go to the next slide. So you, you actually walk in, and you can see the, 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 the labeling of this garden that has these huge olive trees in it. Go ahead and go to the next one. And so they're, they're gigantic, they're huge around. And so this is this, this place that's been set apart that you can actually look, you can keep flipping while I'm talking. Um, you can see some more of the, the, the trees that are there and you can actually, they've got it fenced off. There's a big church right next to it, church of all the nations, the kind of thing. Uh, but here's the most popular view from the Mount of Olives. Like you can see, this is like the view that everybody goes and takes pictures of. You can see the Dome of the Rock, you can see uh, the wall, the temple, you can see all of the different, the, the places along the wall, uh, the farthest side of it. You can see down into the Valley of Kidron, the Kidron Valley where a lot of Israel's history has happened. Uh, you can see uh, a lot from this spot. But this is the vantage point that you are up on top of this hill, looking down, having your eyes on the city of Jerusalem. Now the moment <clears throat> that we're looking into is not just significant to Jesus, but it's really significant to you and I because we're looking at both Jesus and the disciples. On the way, Matthew 26 verse 31 says this, on the way to the garden where you just looked from, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. Yay. <laughs> For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I'll never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Deny three times that you even know me. No! Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. 
And the other disciples vowed the same. You and I have the rest of the story. The first thing we really do see is we are not as strong as we think we are. Right? Like we're not. And I don't think we like to admit that. I don't think we like to say that because it, what? Shows weakness, right? It shows that we're not as strong as we thought we were. Peter attempting to be humble in that moment is actually rejecting what the scriptures say about him, which is our favorite thing to do, right? Not me. Everybody else may struggle with that, but not me. Everyone else might be sinful Israel, but I'm David. Everyone else might be sinful Israel, but I'm Moses. Everybody else. No, not me. Peter, in his trying to be humble, is rejecting what the scriptures teach. He's saying, not me. Jesus is saying, it includes you. And if you had kept your mouth shut, Peter, I wouldn't have had to point out your very, very public denial. But you didn't. So let me tell you who you really are. You are a coward. Peter's humility wasn't humility. It was actually pride. It was rejecting that he could be somebody who would run at the name of Jesus. Peter argues in this point, Jesus singles Peter out. And this is where we end up in the garden. So this conversation happens while they are going to Jesus' most intense moment here on the earth. Matthew 26, we'll read, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Remember, Peter was the one. I'll die for you, Jesus. Why are you sleeping, Peter? What's the deal? Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away, unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. He told them, go ahead, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Often there are times that I will not admit 
that I need help until I have disaster uh, come upon me for trying to do that thing by myself. And many of you know that. It's like when somebody asks you, hey, do you need help getting that out to your car? No, I'm fine. And then you drop it and it shatters and you're like, My, no, I, I guess I did need help, right? Like the truth is, when it comes to admitting that we actually need help, we often learn from failure. Failure is our teacher over and over and over again. And hopefully, if you fail a lot, you learn quick. But if you're not learning, then the Bible talks about wisdom and fools and all that stuff, and that's another conversation we need to have. But oftentimes, the way I know that I'm not as strong as I think I am is trying to do that thing that I think I can do and that I'm strong enough to do, right? It's how we learn. It's how we, we figure out, oh, snap, I'm getting older. My back goes out easier. Did you know you can hurt yourself sleeping? You can do that. You can injure yourself because you laid down wrong. You can injure yourself because you got up too quick. What's the deal with aging? Like that's a crazy thing. But the truth is you often learn you're not as strong as you think you are because of pain, because of hurt, because of failure. Failure is a teacher and this can be a fast track to us admitting I'm not strong enough. But guess what? This is who the gospel is for. Yes. That should have been all the hallelujahs. That should have been the, thank you, Jesus. Like, thank you so much. That what it takes to know real life is to be able to say, I am not as strong as I think I am. That's the beauty of the invitation of what Jesus has come to give us. As long as you and I believe we are stronger than we really are, the gospel will not be good news to you. I need you to hear me say that this morning. As long as you think you are strong enough, the gospel will be no good news to you. It will not be something that overflows out of your life. It will not be something you talk about to others because you will be what you talk about to others. Your name, your story, your accomplishments, your, your list of things, your resume, it will always be first because you think you're stronger than you are. The gospel is only good news to people who go, I'm not strong. The gospel is only good news to those who have got that big old white flag, like not a tiny one that's like this, but this big old white flag. And we're like, oh, like when, 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 a, when a football team scores, that dude runs across the field with usually the logo of the team. It's like, that's our flag. We're dealing with that RV center down 26's size American flag. That's our flag. We want that size surrender flag hanging off the back of our car. We've given up. It's not about us. We can't do it. This is really good news because that's who the gospel is for. Thank you, God. But for those of you who are still keeping on, keeping on, you're fighting, you're striving. Your name matters most. Your resume matters most. The white flag will never be your favorite. In fact, it might detest you. It might make you sick because your strength is what you want on display. Jesus goes with 11 
of his disciples as Judas has already left to begin this process of betrayal. Uh, he asks eight of them to stay put and then he takes three of his closest friends here on earth to pray with him in his tense, intense agony. He tells them, my heart is crushed right now. Here's the deal. If somebody that I really, really love comes to me and says, my heart is crushed. Sleep is not an option. It's not. I'm not just gonna be like, your heart is crushed. Oh, tell me about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Like, it's not an option. Here you have three of the closest friends that Jesus has with him on earth. Jesus just drops this huge, I'm crushed. And they sleep. I'll never desert you, Jesus, but I didn't say I'd stay awake. I didn't say I'd keep my eyes open, but I'll never desert you. And here you have Jesus left alone again with his father. If you've ever been around one of those people who just wears you out, like, you know, it's like every time I get around them, I'm exhausted. Every time I get around them, I need a nap. Every time I'm with them, oh boy, I gotta go to sleep. Maybe that's what they were like with this. Maybe, maybe they were. Maybe Jesus was just so like, you, they could tell the, how ang- the anxiety or the crushingness or, the, or whatever the weight of whatever he was feeling, like maybe they were like, I'm exhausted. Like, I gotta take a nap. Like, I can't be around you right now. Like, this stress, it's hurting me. I need to go and sleep. Or maybe they were overwhelmed because they knew something else was going on. Like, what do we do when we're overwhelmed? We want to do nothing, right? Like, we've got a long list of things to do. What do we want to do? Binge Netflix. We don't actually watch Netflix. We just want to find something to watch on Netflix and take two hours to do that. And we're like, oh, I feel rested. Now I can get on with my day. No. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know why the disciples felt like this is the time to sleep, but they did. And thankfully, Jesus' awareness of our weakness is much greater than our own awareness of our weaknesses. And he still does what he does. On this night, it is not the disciples' faithfulness that's on display, it's Jesus's. I am so glad that what is on display here is not the disciples getting it. Oh, they got it right. No, I'm so glad that Jesus' faithfulness is what's on display because it's gonna cause us to go, yep, he's the hero, I wanna wave the white flag. He's the winner, I'm not the winner, he won it. Let's get that white flag up quicker as we get older. Listen to Jesus' prayer. There's separate times that he goes and prays, but listen to his prayer because I believe it teaches us the way of surrender. Matthew 26, 39, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So here you have a sleepy people and a faithful Savior. Like, 
I know that this is gonna cause pain and I know this is gonna hurt. And I, I, the, the fact that they use the word cup there, I wanna make sure you understand, Jesus is not going to be drinking a poison cup later. Jesus is not going to be drinking something that's bad for him, that's gonna cause him some pain in his stomach or anything like that. It is the cup of suffering. In the Old Testament, cup is often used for punishment or revenge, but in this specific instance, it means suffering. Jesus was about to take on the suffering for the sin of the whole world on our behalf. Isaiah, a prophet 600 to 800 years before Jesus even walked the earth, describes the Messiah here for us. Isaiah 53 says this, yet it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus knew the coming cup of suffering and he knew it well because it's been the plan of rescue all along. This was not a surprise to Jesus. This was not a backup plan. It was the plan that would bring men and women to glory, that it would cause a relationship to be reunited that would have been impossible to reconcile on our own. God himself would come, put on flesh, and dwell among us. And he put the weight of all the sin, all the death, all the rebellion, all the heartbreak, all the sadness, all the weeping, all the mourning. He put it on himself so that we might know resurrection. Two of the greatest mysteries of the world collide here the incarnation and the power of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I have heard people say, man, it's really, it's really bad of God to like crush one dude for the sins of all of us. That's so wrong. Yeah, if he had just sent someone as his substitute, yeah, that might have been a big deal. But because of the triune existent God, the Father, Son, Spirit, one God existing in three persons, he gets the right to tell us how he exists. I know we think as human beings, we're like, that's impossible. Well, you're talking to God, and hopefully he's good at impossible. If he's not good at impossible, then he's probably not God. But he chose to reveal himself as one God, not three gods, one God, three persons. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect relationship. Jesus stepping into time, God the Son coming into time, putting flesh on the mystery of the incarnation, what we celebrate baby Jesus for Christmas. I think if we thought of the mystery of that a lot more, we might not just be like, oh, baby Jesus. No, we'd be like, God steps into time. Like the power of the incarnation and you have the power of the triune existing God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God put it on himself, folks. He said, I'm going to take the beating for those who are mine. And I just don't know that we are captivated by that enough to go that in your place, 
I will take on that cup of suffering. That's the gospel message. He did for us what we could not do on our own. John 10, 17, listen to Jesus's words. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. Jesus willingly laid down his life. There's so many arguments. Who killed Jesus? The Jews? The Romans? Who killed Jesus? No. No one. He laid his life down. It was his plan from the beginning. No one can take my life from me. He's God. No one can take it from him. It's his. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority. I have the authority. Jesus have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it back up again for this is what my father has commanded. But even in knowing this, it is this confession to his father, Jesus says, if there's any other way that suffering doesn't have to play a part, that'd be great. (laughs) If there's any other way, like if there's any other way for, for men and women to be saved and father for you to be glorified, if there's any other way for this to go down, I'd be really cool with that. But yet not my will. Your will be done. Verse 26, or verse 42, Jesus repeats and says, my father, if this cup cannot be taken unless I drink it, your will be done. So the first time, if it can pass, let it pass. Second time, but if I must, I'm going to need your strength for your will to be accomplished. Jesus was not expressing some lack of faith by asking for this bitter cup of suffering to pass from him. He was not. It wasn't like he was like, I don't trust you. He was saying, I know what it's going to cost. I know the pain that's going to come with it. I know the heaviness of it. I know the burden of it. I know the suffering that is going to come. And if there's any other way, God, if there's any other way, Father, Go for it. But if there isn't, I want your will to be done. The power of this imagery is that as Jesus is done praying, he gets up and the words that he says are up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. As Jesus prayed, if you look at that picture that I showed you of the valley, he would have been able to see where Caiaphas' house was and the mob of people that would be coming with their torches up the valley to the Olive Garden. He would have been able to see the torches as they walked in the dark of night to come and take him away as the betrayal had been in full motion. Now, in a day and an age that likes to say, well, name it, claim it, baby. Like, Christians, we are free of suffering. We ain't got to suffer at all because we've given our life to Jesus, so we shouldn't be suffering. We should not be. You know what? If anyone could name it, claim it, Jesus should have been able to. Jesus should have been able to go, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Are the torches still coming? Yeah, they are. Oh, I better pray harder. Uh, not, not my will, but your will be done. The torch is still coming? Yeah, they're still coming. No, Lord, but, but you know, I would just start saying things over and over and just start repeating yourself. And then somehow the suffering ends and the torch lights go out. That's what we want, right? 
We want to be able to go, I prayed enough, I danced enough, I did enough, I waved my hands big enough, I gave a big enough check, I did it all. And the torch lights, they went out. The torch lights are gone. The betrayal is not going to happen. The suffering isn't going to happen. Jesus lays out a pattern for us. And I do believe as his children, we can say, God, if there's any way that you could bring a close to this chapter of suffering in my life, would you? But Father, if for some reason you're not going to, I'm gonna need your strength to walk it out. We want the torches to go out. But what if we were able to say, not my will, but your will be done. This morning, we are not as strong as we think we are. Jesus is faithful. For you and I, as the band comes and we close our time together, Jesus warned the disciples against falling into temptation. And I wanna make sure we understand that the disciples didn't have their iPhones with them in the garden. The temptation was not to look at something on the internet they shouldn't, not to smoke something they shouldn't, not to drink something they shouldn't, not to go sleep with someone they shouldn't, not to go chase money in a way they shouldn't. Like, that wasn't the temptation. Temptation at its core, if I can make it very simple, is temptation is rooted in our inability to surrender as Jesus did. Temptation is rooted. The real temptation is not that thing that you're looking at. The real temptation is to reject surrender and put our dukes up. That's the real temptation. The real temptation is that, God, you're not enough. Your plan's not enough. Your plan's not good enough. So I'm going to take control, and I'm going to do it myself, and I'm going to figure it out, and I'm going to put my dukes up, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to do it myself, and I'm going to make it happen because I don't agree with your ways. That's why we go to that website. That's why we take that second look at that person. That's why we chase the almighty dollar. That's why we try and get bigger houses and bigger uh, and better and faster than everybody else. It's because we are tempted and we have not prayed like Jesus prayed. We have said, Father, my will be done, not yours. That is temptation. And that is what Jesus warned the disciples against in the garden. The subtle danger of the Christian is to even say, I will change my own life on my own. And we will adopt moralism, not Jesus. We will say, you know what? Because I've screwed things up in my past, I'm gonna work extra hard to make them right. And I'm gonna do everything I can to prove that I'm the hero, not the zero. I'm gonna be the one who comes out on top. I dug myself up out of this hole that I dug myself into. And even in that, we are failing to see Jesus as enough. We are saying we have the strength. The suffering that Jesus knew was coming he knew it was the Father's plan, and he said, look, you have this, Father. Your will be done. And Jesus got up and went all the way to the cross. And guess what? The resurrection happened after. 
I don't know where you are this morning and as you go to the table and take communion and as you're, you've walked in this room with all your fight and all your gusto and all your bootstraps pulled up way tight because you did it on your own, I don't know why you go to that table. If that's the strength you walked in here, why is that table of value to you? But if you came in here bloodied and wounded and beaten and struggling and willing to go, I've got to throw this flag up. That table, that meal brings hope because it means resurrection and new life is possible outside of my beating at the air. That's what we're promised. That even though in this life you will have sorrow, you will have suffering, you will have pain, you will have hurt, there will be betrayal, you will have friends fall asleep on you, you will have someone walk away from you, you will have relationships that fall, you will have a job that is lost, you will have, you will have, you. it's all there. I don't know why we've bought the world's lie that everything should be great. When the scripture tells us the reason that things are hard, it's because sin reigns like It's just got its hands on everything. But we have a savior who conquered death and sin so that we might know new life. Father, your will be done is one of the most dangerous prayers we can pray, but it's also the most freeing. So this morning as you go to that table and you take that bread and you dip it in the juice, you are saying, Father, your will be done. And we know that Jesus suffered on our behalf and you gave him the strength to get from the cross all the way to the resurrection. I need that same strength today. I wanna be able to get up and know that Jesus has won the battle and that whatever I face today, your will be done. Father, you're gonna give me the strength for it. If you don't remove it, you'll give me the strength to get through it. As you go to the table, remember this morning, Jesus said, your will be done. He surrendered. The white flag, it's not secondary to the Christ followers walk. It really is everything. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that in these moments, that become really like when the flesh wants to fight. Like we just wanna say, I'm not doing that. Right now, we do. And I just pray against that right now. I pray that your Holy Spirit would knock down any of those barriers, those walls, those ideas that just come flooding in at times like this when we're invited to surrender to the cross and our flesh gets angry and the, the enemy starts to work. I just pray that you'd shut the mouth of the liar right now. And that, God, if there are areas that we aren't wanting to surrender, that, God, you would show us the victory in surrender, even but for a glimpse this morning, just a tiny window. Let us see the power of surrender as we go to that table. We take the body and the blood of Christ, and it covers our own. Thank you. Father, your will be done.